everybody. Welcome to a special edition, special Friday edition of the So We Speak podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about the 2020 presidential election, something that's been hanging in the back of most of our minds for, what, two years now, four yeah. years now, six years now. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it just seems like we are in a mode now where we never get out of political campaigns. It's right. Once something happens, you either accept it or don't accept it, but you immediately begin campaigning for the next election. That's exactly right. And it's kind of like the big black hole that, that pulls everyone's attention. Right. And I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing, but it is a real thing. People have been thinking about 2020 since 2016. Mm-hmm. And here we are on the eve of the vote. 70 plus million people have already voted. Right. Uh, but hundreds more will vote this next week. And I think the, the thing that we want to do in this podcast is not, you know, decide who to vote for. So we are a nonprofit. And so for legal reasons, and I honestly think for our own good, we cannot endorse a political candidate um, because, you know, the point of a nonprofit is that you are representing a community of people. And I think if there's one theme in our discussion, it is there are a lot of different views on this. One of the things we tend to do in politics, and we tend to do this in the church too with theological things, is just reduce things down to a very simple yes or no, black or white, you're in or you're out kind of mindset. And uh, we're going to try to stay away from that. So we obviously can't and won't endorse a political candidate. But we do want to talk about voting. We want to talk about the two candidates as candidates. We want to talk about them personally. And I think most centrally, we want to talk about the two visions for our country that are being offered and how those connect or disconnect from God's vision for our country. Right. And even making that statement, I think, is part of the point. Most Some people say, yes, God has a vision for our country. And some people are on the other side of the microphone thinking, what do you mean God has a... He doesn't care about the United States as a country. <laughs> you know, he only cares about the kingdom. Uh-huh. So those issues, I think, are the most important. And uh, to begin the conversation, I want to start by asking a question that I think a lot of people have been asking. Is this the most important election of our lifetime? Because it seems like we've had a lot of these most important elections of our lifetime. Do you think this is the one? I think the media wants us to think this is the one. It keeps us tuning in. Uh, I suspect people have thought that before, and that turned out apparently not to be true in hindsight. I suspect this one will be the same. Is it an important election? I think yes, because more than a platform is at stake. You have different visions of where the country should go, not just different ideas on platforms. And the bigger issue for me is is even beyond the vision of where these two ideologies will take the country is can the institutions of democracy in our country stand the stress of this election? So I do think it's a pivotal election in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that a lot of people go with the most important election line because it's the most important election for the media. It's the most important election for social media. It's the most important election for people who are covering the election. And it it pays to tell people that this is the most important election because we want it to be significant. And I don't think this is the most important election of our lifetimes. I do think it's very important. Mm -hmm. But... You know, part of the thing is, I think the fact that we're asking that question is already an admission that politics has in some ways become out of sorts in our social and our in our public life. Agree. And, and I think there's a lot of reasons for this. I think some of them are understandable and some of them are malevolent reasons for this. Part of it is the political sphere, the way that we define it, um, shouldn't be an all-encompassing part of our life. But it has become so because if you think about what politics actually is, and we'll get into this in a minute when we talk about issues, most of the things that we talk about when we talk about politics are not, strictly speaking, political issues. They're mostly social issues that have become the uh, purview of our federal government. Right. And I think that in and of itself is a problem. Now, you know, some, some, somebody, the political science people listening are saying, well, I mean, Politics is just the good of the 
civic whole. You know, I mean, Aristotle thought that politics was essentially about creating good people. And if, and if that's what we mean by politics, yeah. then I'm all in on that. Right. But if that's what we mean, we're in a worse spot than I thought we were. Exactly. Because we're not doing that. <laughs> but I, I do mean to say that if you think about traditional political topics, and you can even see this in the debates that we just watched, the two debates that we saw between the presidential candidates and the one between the vice presidential candidates, most of what they're talking about is not related to fiscal policy. Right. So the government has the ability, the Senate and the House have the ability to lay out a budget for the government and then working with the budgets of the different states and which powers are reserved for them to tax and spend money for the operations that they undertake, the agencies, and then for the public good. That is a properly political thing to talk about. Right. Foreign policy, for example. States, local governments, you can't declare war on someone. You cannot engage uh, outside of the United States without the federal government's approval. That is properly politics. Right. Uh, the way that our system works, judicial review, these things are properly political subjects. And, of course, there's a gray area here, but then all of a sudden we have all these other issues. Abortion, climate change. Uh, transgenderism, mm-hmm. you know, and we're going to talk about a lot of these religious freedom of every kind. There's something I think lost when those are the things that we talk about when we talk about politics. And the interesting thing for us, from our perspective, is these are exactly the kind of things that we think the church should be engaging, and the church is engaging. Mm-hmm. But the government and the church are now overlapping in some very significant ways, and I don't think it should be that way. But the fact of the matter is, it is that way. Right. So when we talk about uh, social issues, candidates, you know, approaches to those, it's not that we're bringing politics into the church. It's not that we're bringing the church into politics. It's that the church and the government have become the two major entities vying for the common good and the social life of the people that live in our country. And that's a very unique, I think, uh, but also a, a very pivotal pivotal spot for us to be in as a country, where we do have directly competing visions from the government and from the church on a lot of these core issues. And I think that's one of the things that makes these elections so tense, is because there's sphere overlap. Whereas I think in, and I don't want to idealize the past here, but I think in the past there have been moments where the sphere that the government was looking at and the sphere that the church were, was looking at were not as overlapping as they are now. Maybe I'm wrong on that. What do you think? Oh, I agree completely. Uh, here's a metaphor I would use. It's not perfect. But the way American government, the federal government, was designed is I liken it to a referee in a football game. The referee is there to make sure that the system operates properly, and that is for the good of both teams in mm-hmm. that particular analogy to play. What's happened when the government begins uh, to overreach it's as though the referee starts catching passes and scoring touchdowns mm-hmm. and has, has gone beyond its role. Now the very integrity of the game is at stake. So I would use that analogy for the overreach of our federal government getting out of its original design. So that makes these issues really tricky. Um, and, and I think a lot of the, the different takes that I've seen from Christians, from pastors, from church leaders— it can be uh, either, on the one hand, too aggressive here, like we need to reinstitute a, a theocracy of some kind. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, sometimes a little bit naive in thinking, whoa, 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 why don't we just keep this separate? And I think one of the points is you feel the fact that it is not separate just by living in America today, that these two things are really not. You cannot live in such a way that you're going to keep your church and your beliefs over here and what the government's doing over here, and the two won't meet at any point. We're just not in that world. And so I think we need to approach this from a standpoint of we are members of the church. We are citizens of heaven first. And, and we'll come back to this right. in terms of how we view our engagement. Um, but that we are also citizens of the United States of America. And right. uh, it's not sinful for us to say that, to say that we actually are citizens. Right. And, uh Anyway, I want to dive into a few of these issues with the candidates themselves and uh, ask you a few questions on this to to set up how how we think through the actual people that we could be voting for. Mm -hmm. And we'll come back to how to vote after this. But in terms of these two candidates, you you get the option between Donald Trump, you get the option between Joe Biden. Of course, you can vote third party or you can not vote at all. But if it comes down to those two candidates... 
How are you thinking through the core issue of deciding on one of these two based on the merits of what they are campaigning on? Yes. First thing I would throw out is you raised a key point at the beginning. This is a binary choice. I realize you can write in, you can not vote. I'm going to lump both of those into effectively not participating in the process. Not judging that, but you're basically not participating in the process. But it's also important on the other side to realize you have a binary choice. This is not a referendum on one individual or another. And I think where you see a lot of things going off is if you pick Donald Trump and say, let me tell you everything that's wrong with Donald Trump, I'll probably say amen to many of the things that you're going to say. But we could do the same thing for Joe Biden. And honestly, that doesn't get us anywhere. It tends to be a sign of people that have uh, are trying to defend a preconceived position. Realistically, uh, I don't see either one of these candidates uh, being ideal. I mean, that's an understatement of the century. So how do you approach it? Uh, I think people tend to have categories. And for example, one I hear a lot of is the moral category. Which candidate is more moral? Mm -hmm. The second might be policies. Which candidate supports policies that are better for me or my particular issue that I like, or my family. And then others are a little more visionary, and they'll say which candidate supports policies that are, for example, authoritarian versus freedom of the individual. So I think there are various levels and various categories. If you pick one of those categories, I think you still have a tough decision here because you're not going to be able to vote down the line and agree, even policy-wise, even vision-wise, with either candidate. So I do think people sometimes pick a category. I do that uh, personally. I think there are some categories that are more important. For example, I reject the moral category. This is my personal opinion. I mean, basically trying to decide which of these two candidates has the moral high ground is arguing which gopher in Death Valley is taller. I mean, it makes no difference. You know, they're both very low. So I reject yeah. that. And I tend to focus a little bit more on vision and policy and what is the effect on those things uh, for the church. One other thing I ask myself too is what would, and we want to train ourselves to think biblically, what's a biblical point of view as to what's most important here? Yeah. So the category thing, I think, is the way a lot of people fall into it. What do you think? Well, just to clarify, I think when you say the moral category, you mean the personal morality yes. of the two candidates, not the moral positions that they represent. And, uh, you know, when it comes to Christians and voting, one of the things I think we need to separate out is what are things that Christians can disagree on and what are things that Christians can't disagree on? And uh, we're basically in a world right now where there's nothing that Christians can't disagree on. If you only take a straw poll of the blue checks on Twitter or people right. writing for Christianity Today or the, the sermons that you hear at different churches or uh -huh. if you just Google Christians and whatever, you're going to get differing opinions. But I do think there is something significant in assessing something that is uh, worth taking a stand on for Christians versus things that... We don't need to bind anybody's consciences. People can disagree about this. Right. And so I would put certain things into a moral category in that sense and things into a political category in that sense. So, for example, the fundamental orientation of the two parties, social issues aside, I don't think is something to bind anybody's conscience about. Whether you prefer a smaller federal government and a balanced budget and you know, subsidiarity, kind of trickle-up right. kind of leadership and uh, tax cuts and everything in a traditional Republican sense, or if you want to increase welfare spending and you want a bigger federal government and you want a hard focus on raising up people who are in poverty, providing right. for the needs of the oppressed, and, and, and that's kind of the traditional line you hear right now from the Democrats, I think those are pretty much amoral. Now, when you get down into the specifics, of course, you can critique and, and do the right. pros and cons of any policy. Where the rub is, I think, for Christians is these candidates or these political parties are now advocating things that I don't think we can consider uh, indifferent to right. the Christian worldview. And that, and that you know, the, probably the best example of this would be the abortion issue. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of people, abortion is the single issue in this vote. One party 
is pro-abortion. They are pro-tax-funded abortions. They are pro-abortion up to uh, almost the point of birth. And one of the parties is pro-life. And that, that's the issue. And so, it's a, you know, I'm going to vote pro-life no matter what else is right. there. What do you think about that for these two candidates? I think, uh, and, and we need to bring another corresponding issue in after this, but on this issue, I have a very difficult time thinking biblically that Jesus would be okay with the equivalent of genocide. Mm-hmm. And now I understand you may be Christian and say life doesn't begin until birth, etc., etc. And you can parse this any way you wish, but if you think about it, you know, in just in the United States, we kill more than six hundred thousand. That's a low number per year of unborn children. If you think about Jesus being on the side of the marginalized and those who have no power, it's hard to think of a group that's less. Now, there are other groups. I understand that. I'm not minimizing anything else. I'm just saying the most powerless among us are those who are not yet born. This is not a trivial issue. This is not something anyone who thinks biblically can shrug off easily. Now, I'm leaving aside, does that mean, well, that settles the vote? I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying this is a big deal. This is not a matter of opinion. This is a matter of serious consequence, I think. I agree. And and I think for people that do think it's a single vote, I I think that's exactly right. If if it's one issue and it's the issue of abortion, then absolutely. I think this is is just so clear biblically. Don't endorse candidates who are for abortion. I I don't think that's really that hard to argue. Now, what people are doing with that is saying it's not as clear as it sounds. Right. It's not just one president is going to personally oversee hundreds of thousands of abortions and the other one is going to stand at the doors, chain them together and make sure abortion doesn't happen. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about that argument in a a minute if we have time. But I do think it's worth saying, yeah, if this is the one issue, and I think this is a pretty legitimate issue to make the one issue, it does seem like a pretty clear choice. It is. Let me flip over to another issue, but I do want to come back, and I, I think you should assess the arguments, most of which I think are rationalization. I'll give you my opinion ahead of time, but they're worth reading and listening to about why this isn't as clear-cut a choice. Racism. I know there are people who feel, uh, and I won't, I'm just going to represent other people's points of view here for a minute, but there are people that feel that Donald Trump and the Republican Party in general, but particularly Donald Trump, has said things and done things that they, they understand him to be racist. That's biblical worldview, cannot embrace uh, racism. Others would say that's not the case for the other candidate. And yet a third party would say, which is more racist? Basically a welfare paternalistic system that over the decades has kept certain people down in a very soft way or you know, something more progressive. I'm disheartened on this issue because I don't see either candidate necessarily providing a way forward that I think is absolutely critical in this discussion. This is another big decision because it's biblical. I just want to say, let's be careful to watch the facts and let's be careful to advocate uh, for specific things. In other words, racism isn't my issue here. I'm going to give you a personal opinion because I'm not sure either one of these candidates have a good approach on this idea. But which candidate is for educating all of our kids? Which candidate is going to get all of our kids to work? Again, I understand those are subsidiary issues, but those are at least two practical things that might start attacking racism. I realize some of our listeners would say, Terry, I don't think you're seeing the whole thing here, and they may be right. I'm just looking for something that moves this forward. But that's another issue that's a biblical consequence. Yeah, and I think that isn't probably talked about enough. Uh, and obviously, racism, I think, is talked about too much, probably. Yeah. But this part of the issue is not talked about enough, and that is the Bible is just as clear about racism as it is about abortion. Exactly. Racism is sinful, and all forms of it are sinful. I think the discussion we're having in America right now is what is racism? And that's where I think we really can have an intelligent and important discussion what is racism? What is anti-racism? Mm-hmm. What is a racist policy? What is a way of viewing the world to where every problem looks like racism? You know, kind of neo-Marxist, and we don't even have time to get into critical race theory and all right. that. But you know, so are we evaluating race, or are we talking about uh, things that we disagree about what racism actually is? I agree. And, you know, for me in this back to the election for a minute, because that is an important topic. But as I look at the election, 
don't read this wrong. I'm not thinking of racism per se because of that ambiguity. Right. I'm thinking more, what policies do I think will help uh, Hispanic kids, Asian kids, black kids, white kids get a better education and get jobs. That's at least a step. So I'm looking at something a little more concrete that yeah. I think we can at least all agree that, okay, this this may not solve our problem. I don't know it won't solve our problem, but this is a good step forward. Yeah, this is where I think we all agree to 99% of people in America, it's 99.99% of America, agree on the destination. Yeah. We don't want to oppress people based on their skin color, based on things they don't control, any of that. We don't want to we, we don't want to enact anything that would be racist. And I say that in air quotes because that discussion. But we disagree profoundly about how to get there. Right. And that's where I'd say that's one of those issues that is a political issue in terms of what policies are going to do best. So opportunity zones, school choice, thinking about how we enforce laws in cities when riots happen, for example. I mean all these things are things we can argue about. Right. Racism is another issue, though, where I think, like abortion, we 100% agree on the conclusion. Uh, maybe we can argue a little bit about how to get there. Uh, and maybe certain candidates fall into an, accept, uh, an acceptable path and others don't. But mm-hmm. I think as Christians, that's pretty clear for us. Right. Uh, before we go on to how different Christians are thinking about different uh, ways, ways to assess these candidates, are there other issues that you feel like... Um, are not just a difference of political opinion, but really a matter of conscience for the Christian when it comes to this election and these candidates. I think there are some other issues that are matters of conscience for some Christians. I'm not sure that I, uh, and I may just not be able to bring it to mind right now, Uh, help me if you can, I'm not sure I could throw another, and I realize abortion isn't something that all Christians would necessarily agree on, I'm talking about a biblical point of view. I yeah. just I think it's very difficult to skirt that issue. I think it's very difficult to skirt the racism issue. I think there are other things, like there are some Christians that would say uh, rights for those uh, uh, transgender, etc., you know, b- various social issue type things, but I don't think any of those things would rise to a broad sense of biblical consensus. I, I do. What, what I, else? I, I probably would be stronger on that in the sense that I, I do think it's worth saying, I don't think you can believe what the Bible says and support abortion. So I know there are some people who claim to be Christians. Joe Biden is one of them. Yeah. Claims to be a Catholic, but is refused communion at some Catholic churches because he clearly, now for them, it's he clearly doesn't abide by the teachings of the Catholic Church. Right. But it's also a, a more important matter for us to say he does not abide by the clear teaching of Scripture. Mm-hmm. So whether a Christian believes that they can believe something or not is less important to me than what I think the clear teaching of Scripture says. Right. And again, and that's where we have to go back to, when you do that, when you take that perspective, perspective, you run the risk of binding people's consciences where the Bible doesn't bind them. Right. I just am of the, of the opinion that it's not binding people's consciences to say you should be against abortion in every form. Mm-hmm. So abortion, I think, is that that level. I think racism generally, as we've talked about it, is that level. I think transgenderism is 100% that level. And I wrote about this in the Weekly Speak a few weeks ago. If you think about it, why is it that all these social issues start with kids? And this is something that really gets gets me angry. Why is it that whether it's schools, whether it's poverty, whether it's lunches, programs, entitlements, whether it's transgenderism, whether it's abortion, whether it's anything that we consider a progressive social issue, why is it that the kids suffer first and the kids suffer most? That's the thing that makes me the most upset about the transgenderism thing is when Joe Biden has his town hall, when they were supposed to have the second debate, it isn't Uh, the question that the government has dealt with, which is, should we pay for people in prison to get conversion uh, operations or Uh therapies and um, hormone treatments? It isn't, uh, can transgender people serve in the military? Those are interesting questions. Those are questions we should be having as a society, but they don't have the pull that the question they ask does. Woman stands up and says, I have an 8-year-old and a 10-year-old, and my 8-year-old believes that you know, she is a girl, but she was born as a boy. And, um, you know, what would you say to that person? Joe Biden says, I think if an eight-year-old decides they want to be transgender, they should be, and nobody should tell them not to, and they should be able to do that. I mean, 
that issue to me is so clear-cut biblically on what we should think about that, that it's hard to believe. Sometimes you almost have to like blink to see, are we, are we living in the real world where mm-hmm. this is something that a national candidate for office is saying on live TV? That, you know, whether it's the Obama administration's dear colleague letters with the bathroom saying, you know, if you're a public school mm-hmm. and you want money from the government, you will let kids choose which bathroom they want to go to. You will let them choose which gender they want to be. You will not misgender them. You will not discourage them. I mean, that's really happening in our federal government. Mm -hmm. And if we go back to the Biden administration, certainly Kamala Harris and her influence over that, that is going to be the norm. And I think a lot of people have forgotten that we're not arguing about bathrooms like we were in 2015. Right. Or, uh, you know, throughout the whole Obama administration, Mm -hmm. but especially there at the end. And uh, I would definitely consider this one of those issues that it is pretty clear biblically. I don't think you should support a candidate who is in favor of transgenderism. And I especially don't think you should be in favor of a candidate who advocates it for children, for minors. Let me nuance that a little bit because I'm in agreement with you about that. I I find it hard to see that as anything other than child abuse, although I understand that its proponents would see it as child abuse. Enabling and child support. Which, by the way, doesn't make it an easy issue. No. The nuance I would simply add is when you bring that situation up, I don't think there's any question about what you just said. I understand, but when you when we say the word transgenderism, we're also thinking about people who are struggling, people who are uh, saying, "Should I be not allowed to have a job because of this, etc." It's a very broad issue, and so treating people with dignity and respect. I simply want to nuance it and say, underlying it, and you just didn't speak to this in this particular case, is we do believe in the dignity and respect for all people. What we don't believe in is the then the affirming of what everybody thinks should then be imposed on everybody else. That's not the way this country was ever founded. You take it a step further, and that is the idea of what are we doing with our children? Because what we allow to happen to the least vulnerable in our or to the most vulnerable in our society, I think as Christians we're going to be held accountable for that. Yeah, and you you have to think of the passage where Jesus says anybody who brings harm on one of these. Children, it'd be better for him if a millstone was hung around their neck, and they were dropped in the bottom of the right. sea. Right. I mean, this is something that Jesus takes extremely seriously. Right. So we've covered some of the key issues. Obviously, not all the issues. We don't. We don't have enough time. Uh, to cover everything, but I think three of the key issues. Let's talk a little bit about how people are approaching voting. So you've gotten tons and tons of statements and op-eds and arguments for and against each candidate. Which of these have you found convincing, not convincing, helpful, not helpful? Well, there are certainly people whose thinking I respect who have different points of view. And so I, I will admit to you that the I have not heard, and this may be because I'm not reading the right things. So I'm not saying no there isn't. Blame you if you've stopped reading political takes yes. on the election. I have not heard uh, a strong, as strong a Christian writer uh, argument in favor of voting for Biden as I have a Christian argument in favor of not voting for Trump. Right. Does that make sense? Well, and I think the polling data is is playing that out that, you know, a good portion of people are excited about Biden, but a big portion of people are protesting Trump with their vote. Right. And I think a lot of Christians probably fall into that category that are going to that are going to end up voting for Biden or end up not voting at all. You know, three that might be worth summarizing, and I know you can summarize these well for us, but I felt like Al Mohler uh, is always thoughtful. John Piper weighed in, got some criticism for it, but his his point is biblical thinking. You may disagree with him, but it's hard to be critical of someone who's trying to think biblically. And then if you don't know Douglas Wilson, Doug Wilson, uh, agree with him, disagree with him, is a sharp thinker. Mm-hmm. And I think those three have maybe different approaches. How would you assess those? Yeah, I'll summarize a couple of these. We'll, we'll, we'll phrase them this way. Let's start with the molar option. So the molar option, I think, is probably what most Christians are going to do. I included some polling data in the weekly speak this week. 
So, you know, the big number was somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of evangelicals, white evangelicals, voted for Trump in 2016. That was the major vote for Trump, the major demographic group. It looks like maybe if 85 percent or so voted for him in 2016, 83 percent or 81 percent are going to vote for him in 2020. It's still a huge demographic group, even if it's down a little bit. Right. Uh, most of the opposition you're seeing is not from evangelicals. In the Christian world, it would be from the other denominations. And Mueller certainly represents kind of the standard evangelical option. His his The Mueller option summarized is, you don't have to vote for a candidate, vote for a platform. And he, he made it very clear in an article this week, and he originally said this in a, in a Ask Anything Q&A uh-huh. uh, a couple of months ago, that he didn't vote for Trump in 2016, and he, you know, didn't support Trump for a lot of reasons then, and he doesn't support him for those reasons now. But the reason that he is endorsing or, you know, personally going to vote for Trump now is because of the difference in platform between the Republican vision for the country and the Democratic vision for the country. And, and he does a great job of delineating how he's assessed that. Abortion is a huge issue. But so are things like freedom of religion, transgenderism, the vision for the way the country is governed, you know, in terms of those proper political uh, points. But but his point in a nutshell is vote for the platform. Vote for the vision of the country that you agree with, not for the candidate. I think that's a, an astute observation. One thing I would say that makes it sensible to me why he would not have voted for Trump in 2016 and would perhaps in 20 is the Democratic parties has changed radically in four years from a liberal party, and I'm speaking here in terms of just liberal democracies, a liberal party to a leftist party. So I can understand his shift on that. I think anybody that's watched that can see why he might feel that way. Well, and that's why, you know, earlier I said, I don't think this is the most important election of our lifetime. That's the reason. I think the 2016 election was the most important election of our lifetime. And I think it's kind of ironic in hindsight that I think there's a lot of Christians probably that didn't vote for Trump in 2016. And and the reason that Mueller gives is because he wasn't sure what he was going to do. Right. And I think there were a lot of people there. I didn't vote for Trump in 2016 because I didn't like him. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think he was going to govern the country like a Republican. Right. I thought he was going to get in there and do a bunch of crazy stuff, which some people are like, that's exactly that's, what he did. That's what happened. <laughs> but I think, you know, the consensus view, if you look at what he's done, he has governed like a Republican. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I think the country has radically changed. If you think about all the things that have happened between then and now, and this is one of the things that Mueller talks about. If you think about what happened with the impeachment, and you think about all the coverage of that in the media, if you think about what happened in the Kavanaugh hearings and everything that happened there, we have a radicalized leftist wing. It's not the entire party. In fact, that's what Biden is basically running on, is that this is not the whole party. This is a coalition that we can build. But if you look at the radical left wing, I'm much happier that those people and those ascendant ideas took place in response to who was actually in power as opposed to being in power. Right. Uh, and and so I think somebody like Mueller says, look, we have seen the cards. We know what the left wants to do. Why would you vote for that vision of the country? Right. That's become ascendant in the Democratic Party. Why would you vote for that vision of the country? And so for him, it's not about voting. He, he has this long section on character. You know, one of the things, for example, he said... Uh, you know, if, if I voted for Donald Trump, he said this in 2016, if I voted for Donald Trump, I would have to write an apology to Bill Clinton because he opposed mm-hmm. Bill Clinton on character grounds. Right. And this is where I see the strongest attack probably against Christians who plan to vote for Trump. And we'll, we'll get to them in a minute, but right. is character matters in the White House. Mm-hmm. And Mueller basically says, yes, but what kind of character? Is it the character of your policies? Is it the character of your person that I do or don't like? Uh, or, or, or is it the character of what you've done to the office? And rightly or wrongly, one of the things that I think Mueller takes a stand on is Bill Clinton desecrated the office with his character in a way that Trump hasn't. And, I, and like I said, I think a lot of people disagree with him there, but I think that's where he's coming back on this. Is he, he says, I made a stupid statement 
then, but I wouldn't. I still am not ready to apologize for what I said about Bill Clinton. Right. Well, and then John Piper uh, really hits on this character issue. Comes at it maybe from a little different perspective. Yeah, the Piper option would be assessing each candidate based on their character, and I think the crucial insight that Piper makes is that uh, it's more than just abortion uh, as a sin in our country that is deadly. You know, one of the things that Piper spends a lot of time on in the article is, is listing the sins that the Bible says. These are the fruits of the flesh. These sins lead to death. This is not mm-hmm. something to play around with. This is not something to say this is kind of a difference of opinion. Right. What Piper doesn't allow you to do is say politicians are just going to be politicians. That's just part of life. He, he looks at this from a biblical perspective saying, I don't think that a person who has the character to advocate for abortion should be our president. And I don't think a person who has the character that is proud and boastful and licentious and cheats on his wife and brags about it and so many other things, I don't think that person should be president. Because I think that character kills your country and character matters. And so the Piper option is both of these candidates are disqualified from high office because of their personal character. Therefore, you shouldn't vote for either of them. Mm-hmm. Now, you might you might be able to add the storm's addendum onto the Piper option. You know, if we're gonna if we're gonna maybe uh, request that we have an amendment to the Piper option, uh-huh. Sam Storms, who is a pastor in Oklahoma City and has been a friend of John Piper's for thirty years, has mm-hmm. been on the board at Desiring God, wrote an article basically saying yes. But are these two things operative in the same way? Right. And so you may even be thinking, but are we going to rank those two things the same? Anyway, there's differences of opinion here. And I think Sam Storms wrote an article today saying that he did vote. And I I really respect the fact that he said, I'm not going to tell you who I voted for because I am a minister of the gospel. And uh, he can do that. Pastors can do that. They could tell you who they voted for. They can't endorse mm-hmm. a candidate you know, on behalf of their church or tell their people they must vote for this person. But uh, anyway, I think that's another nuance on right. the Piper option, which is both of these people are displaying sins that the Bible condemns. Um, and I don't know that we need to talk about the opposition to Piper, but he, he really got some pushback on that from both sides. People right. that are not satisfied with him bringing down the hammer hard enough on the other side. But that's that's the Piper option. The last one I want to cover uh, is the Wilson option. And he, his coverage of the election has just been great. He's a mm-hmm. great writer. There's people that have problems with some of the things that he has stood for over the years. And one of these days I'll write a defense of Doug Wilson article uh, for <laughs> So We Speak, but not today. His option is essentially voting is a tactic, not a sacrament. That's one of the seven right. things that he that, that he writes in this article that we'll link to in, in the notes. But uh, he says seven reasons why it's possible for Christians to vote for Trump without getting a defiled conscience or uh, losing their souls, which is a great, great title for a blog. But his point is essentially voting is a tactic. We have an agenda that we are trying to enact in the world as Christians. We Mm -hmm. are trying to see, uh, however you want to phrase it, the kingdom advance. We're trying to see things on earth as it is in heaven. We are trying to conform to the image of Christ. We're trying to fulfill the Great Commission. We have a mission that we are trying to accomplish as Christians. And politics is a tool that we can use and engage with when it suits our purposes and ditch when it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So we are not actually members of this political system. We are adjacent to the political system. And if it helps us to do something politically, great. If it doesn't, Go about your business. That's So there's a difference between what Mueller is saying and what Wilson is saying right. in the way that they view our participation in culture. Wilson says voting is a tactic. So what could we accomplish as a church if we voted for one of these two candidates? And you can go read his stuff. I think that it's really astute observation, but it comes down to this. For Christians, we want to protect religious freedom. We want to be able to worship. We want to be able to gather we want to be able to teach what the Bible says. And there is one party that one and one candidate that, as so far as we can see, will allow us to do that. And one party and one candidate who have already said that they won't allow us to do that. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think this is overblown. But if you remember in the debates when Beto O'Rourke said, 
uh, when he was asked, would you take away tax-exempt status from people, from, from churches who don't line up basically with the LGBTQ vision of the world? He said, yeah, we'll definitely take away. No one should be subsidized for hate-mongering in America. And uh, I don't know if Beto will get a role in the Biden administration if he right. wins. Uh, I don't know if they'll decide that he needs to be taking tax-exempt statuses away or if he needs to be taking guns away. But those are kind of his two platforms. And Biden has been campaigning with Beto. Right. And so, you know, from Wilson's standpoint, what could we do tactically? Well, we could ensure religious freedom. That would be a start. That would mm-hmm. be a good thing. Um, the other things that he points to are, do we want to live in a world where speech is censored for certain groups? I mean, Christians probably feel the pinch of this. We certainly do on social media right. uh, with our posts from So We Speak. Uh, do we want to live in a world that's censored? No, we don't. We don't want to live in that world. So there's one candidate who's going to push back on censorship and one that's not. And so that's the way that he comes at this issue. And so I think those are three uh, broad perspectives from from Christians. Again, we haven't dealt with anybody that's pro-Biden yet. Maybe you want to summarize some things that you've seen from that perspective. But I think these are three pretty mainstream tactics. Vote the platform. Don't vote for either because of disqualification. Vote as a tactic to you know fulfill what right. the church is doing. No, I, I agree. I think those are all good thinking. You may obviously disagree. They disagree with one another. They're very civil about it, and they're all striving to apply a biblical way of thinking to the issue. That's what I think is really healthy. You know, you did touch on one thing. I don't know if you're ready to segue into a couple of meta issues, but that even so, we speak has felt a little bit of the censorship that goes on quite broadly on social media platforms. And I think social media companies and the whole idea of censorship may be subtly on this ballot as well. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think we, we want to do you know a podcast episode, and I think we'll have plenty of opportunity by the way things are looking in terms of big tech and Section 230 and right. the catch-22 of that, whether or not this whole monopoly strategy is the way to go after big tech. I'm not convinced about that. But I will say this. It's easy to dismiss something like the New York Post story if you don't agree with it. Right. You know, for example, you see other media pundits saying, well, there's no proof that it is true. And, you know, it does violate mm-hmm. certain standards on social media. You see Jack Dorsey yesterday in front of the Senate saying, well, I mean, we have clear rules and it violated it. And, and the problem is they don't uniformly enforce their rules. But that in and of itself is a little bit different problem than the one that I feel and that I think a lot of Christian companies feel. And, and in fact, we may have to relocate the weekly speak here soon because I got a, I got an email yesterday, and this really encapsulates the problem. We got an email yesterday from Mailchimp, so that's the company we use to distribute our emails, and they said our terms and and you license license agreement has changed. Normally, I'll just delete that email, but I had a hunch that this probably was something kind of interesting, so I went down into their agreement that nobody reads, into section seventeen where they talk about hate or where they talk about what you can and can't post on their platform. So to be clear, they are sending emails to lists of people that you have already specified. They, these are not emails that they can. So like people that have signed up for the weekly speak, all they are is the software that says, I'll send out your email to these they, people. They literally are FedEx for the internet. Right. And so they now have updated their terms of use to say that if you are an organization Or, and this is the part that I think is so interesting, if you are a person who it turns out is in favor of, even by association with a group who advocates for the hatred or oppression or discrimination against any of these groups of people, and of course it's all the groups that you would think of, more than the title category. So obviously you have on the basis of sex, on the basis of socioeconomic, on the basis of gender... You also have on the basis of gender preference. You also have on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, all of these new kind of progressive categories. If you are a person who, um, what they said, causes harm or advocates for harm for any of these groups of people, they have the right and will delete your account without notice. So I just say that. Facebook has policies like that. Twitter has policies where they get to decide what is harm. 
right. and they get to act upon it. I think that's the real problem with social media right now. And I, and, and I don't think that Donald Trump is the silver bullet to that problem by right. any means. Uh, partially because I don't think it's a presidential thing. I think it's a, it's a it's a congressional thing. Right. But I do think that he represents a group of people who believe that um, you know a, a person in San Francisco doesn't get to decide what is and isn't harm, especially when it comes to things that Christians have believed universally for two thousand years. Right. Uh, and so yeah, we we can't get ads passed on Facebook ninety five percent of the time because they count anything. Uh, in a really broad category that's a social issue as something that you have to be a special group to be able to post. And they've stalled our application process for like nine months now so that we can't be one of those groups. So I'm, I'm not saying we're being persecuted here. I think that we probably jumped to that a little too quickly. I mean, we live in the information age. We have social media. You know, we're, we're dealing with a, a small set of issues here. But it does go back to a worldview difference between a right. world that we want to live in on the progressive left and a world that we want to live in that I think the core, I, I would say, you know, the vast majority of Americans believe is what America is based on. Right. And to be fair, this is coming from two guys who would both delete Donald Trump's Twitter account if we could. Oh, 100%. <laughs> um, I just think, you know, if you're going to delete his, you should delete the Ayatollahs. Yes. No, um, I agree. Completely. So... To, to another meta issue, though, beyond just this issue of censorship, which I think is playing a big role in, in the election right now, um, the issue of protest is a huge issue right now and different strategies for quelling rioting and looting as opposed to giving rise to peaceful protest, I think is a big issue. Um, you know, the, the other meta issue that I want to ask you about is in terms of what happens after the election, mm -hmm. are we on a path towards more and more and more division or and polarization? Or is there a way that because of this election or regardless of this election, we start to come back together a little bit as a country? What do you see on that front? I wish I had the opinion, and I'm going to give you an opinion. I may be wrong, and, and I hope that I am, because I don't see a way. I'm not trying to be a a gloom and doom person, I don't see how we come together in this. I don't think if Donald Trump wins, there's any way we can avoid violence and there's any way we can avoid, avoid four more years of even more bitter recriminations. If Joe Biden wins, I think we will see less violence. Nevertheless, I am concerned about violence and surprisingly, from both ends of the spectrum, from the far right, which we would disavow, the white supremacy, etc., which is, has no place here. And I'm not sure you won't still see violence from the leftist factions uh, as well. So I, I think maybe there'll be a little less violence, but I don't see that necessarily getting better. I don't see either one of these candidates being unifying leaders. No, I don't either. I think the Biden campaign has campaigned on being a uniting force. Uh, you know, they have language that sounds uniting. You know, Biden's big deal is he got into this because of uh, the comments that the president made about good people on both sides. Yeah. And uh, I think that's been proven to be false. I think even in the moment, everybody knew that he wasn't referring to white supremacists. But regardless, that trope gets trotted out a lot. And so he's saying, I'm going to fight for the soul of the country. I'm going to bring us right. back together. And almost every action of the people in his party would lead you to believe that that's not, that's not actually true. Well, Whereas Donald Trump probably has a party that's working for unity in a lot of different right. ways. And every time he opens his mouth, there's a chance that he's going to say something that is really divisive. Yeah, and that's true. I, I think that's a given. We've seen four years of that, and he is a divisive figure. And that's what some people like about him. I don't want to discount right. that. You know, people like that he's a counterpuncher. But there's a difference between standing up for the little guy, uh, beating back the deep state, you know, standing up to the Washington cronyism complex, standing up against the media, and you know, taking the path of most resistance, which is right. what Trump seems to like to do. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just, my, I'm simply saying as a practical matter, not a matter of, uh, I like this person, I don't like that person. I don't think he will be a unifying figure. I don't think, even if I thought Joe Biden was a unifying person, he's got a tiger by the tail, 
And I don't believe there is any way that liberal Democrats can live with the leftist ideology. I don't think any, I don't believe he can unify his own party, let alone the country. Right. And so uh, I find I, I'm a little bit pessimistic about the unity. Uh, I think unity is down the road for us. I mm-hmm. don't think it's coming out of this election. Well, I want to shift into uh, what you think is going to happen. Let's. I, I want to get some predictions here. So first thing, we've talked about what you think is going to happen when, you know, after the vote. I, I, I probably agree. I think there's going to be violence no matter what. And that's a really sad state of affairs. This is the United States of America. And if you look at what's happening in Philadelphia right now or what happened in Minnesota over the summer and a lot of our other big cities, if you look at what happened in the People's Republic of Chaz over the summer, right. it looks like Beirut. I mean, yeah. and no offense to Beirut, but it, it, it yeah. just looks like somewhere there's been a civil war. Right. And we can lament that. I think certain political decisions are better than others, but I, my prediction is that's going to happen no matter who wins, especially if it's close, especially if there's a lot of litigation. What, what predictions do you have or what sense do you have about what's going to happen with the votes? You know, we can get down into the weeds on this. Uh, I feel basically when all is said and done and, and have spent a lot of time paying attention to it, but I, I try not to get too wrapped up in the polls or anything. I feel the same way I did last time is I personally think that the polls would say that Biden will win. And I thought that last time about Hillary Clinton and it wasn't the case. Uh, I have a little different opinion this time. I'll just throw this out. This may not be what you're looking for. I think if Joe Biden wins, there's no doubt that we will see an increasingly hostile environment for people who think biblically. I believe that will be God choosing to prune his church. I believe if Donald Trump wins, we will retain more religious freedom and we will have the option whether to continue to be more associated with the Republican Party, which is unhealthy for the church, or will we use that religious freedom to be even more adamant about uh, spreading the gospel? Yeah, one, one issue we haven't talked about is judges. And this is a big issue. I think it was the abortion issue of 2016. Mm-hmm. It was the one where people said, if you got one issue, one reason to vote for Trump— it's because he's going to appoint judges off of this conservative list that he's released. And, and he's been true to that. Three Supreme Court justices, right. hundreds of lower court uh, appointments. And I, I do think in a sense that that is the answer to the, the person that says, okay, so basically America's driving off a cliff, and we're arguing over whether we're going to go off the cliff at 80 miles an hour or 40 miles an hour. Right. I really do think that there are some things being put in place that are an emergency break. Now, we may still skid over the edge, Mm -hmm. and we are certainly still heading that direction in some ways, but I think the appointment of judges, I think uh, the deregulation that the Trump administration has has engaged in over the last four years, I think uh, having somebody try to push back against the media bias in a lot of these mainstream media... Some of that, I think, could fundamentally change the trajectory. But I don't think we're pulling a U-turn and speeding up. So I think this is a moment of crisis and a moment of judgment for the church, no matter if we uh, head into Biden years where there is a little bit of calm before the storm, I think, and then we see back to the Obama days of eroding religious freedom, censorship, kind of impinging on freedoms one at a time probably sped up by the by the radical left. Uh, and I don't think it's fear-mongering to say that. I think that's probably pretty wise to just take people at their word that that's what they're going to do. Uh, especially with things, you know, you got the whole court packing thing and right. all, all of that right now. I think that's probably wise to just say, you know, some of the fundamental things that the Trump administration did uh, in the courts, in public life, would be reversed under Biden. Right. Um, I, I think in terms of what Christians are going to experience, there's a whole argument over losing credibility, for example. Christians really have credibility after aligning with Trump. And I think that's a little bit of a straw man. But it's something that we need to pay attention to. And, mm-hmm. and we'll get into this at the end here about you know Christians broadly. Let's step back from politics for a second and just think about what we're doing. But but I do think Christians on the whole have been treated like a voting block. And I think that's unhealthy for the church. And I, and I, I think agree. that's going to be cemented uh, 
whether Trump wins or not uh, afterwards. Yeah, I think to me, the way I see it for the church, this is just one guy's opinion. If Biden wins, then we will see how our faith fares under oppression. And if Trump wins, we'll see how our faith fares under freedom. And they're both challenges for the church. Yes. And the infighting that comes with that. One one of the other predictions, uh, inside the church and outside the church, what do you think happens to the never-Trumpers out of this deal? So you have this very strange... And, and my political memory is not very long. I know there are examples of fracturing. And, of uh-huh. course, you know, in the days of Teddy Roosevelt, you have a competitive third party. Right. And, you know, we, we don't really have a competitive third party, no offense to Kanye, uh, in this election. <laughs> but you do almost have a third party in this group of people who have decided they are Republicans, but they cannot and will not vote for Trump. And a lot of them are voting for Biden as a protest vote against Trump. And that, that's kind of a unique situation to be in. It's in the church and outside the church. They're a little different flavor in both of those groups. But uh-huh. you have this strong never-Trump contingency. What happens to those, th- those groups? What role do those people play after the election? Yeah, I think they probably go into mental institutions if Trump wins. I think it's (laughs) going to be hard to deal with. And if Biden wins, I think it's going to be the be careful what you wish for. Yeah, I've thought a lot about, you know, the fact that at that point, everything that Biden does, it's like you voted for this. Yeah. You know, and I'm I'm, I'm not into second guessing in a lot of those situations, but it is kind of mind blowing. Well, I'm sympathetic to the antipathy for Trump. I just think you're, you're arguing about the wrong issue there. Yeah, I'm surprised that never Trump doesn't equal never Biden. I, th- I think right. if, you, if you're a consistent person, and I think a lot of these people are consistent people, they're just angry. Right. But I think consistent thinking would lead you to say, if Trump is disqualified and could never have your vote no matter what he advocates for, then Biden should be disqualified because of different reasons, but because of the same moral calculus. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that the, the non-Christian group, like the Lincoln Project, for example, I mean, they've taken the worst of Trump's tendencies and turned it against Trump. Mm-hmm. They're petty. They, it's all ad hominem. It's all out of context. They have a total disregard for truth. Uh, you know, I think those guys end up basically being used mm-hmm. by Democrats to try to get their candidate in. And then whether they win or they lose, they don't need those people anymore. Right. Uh you know, I, I do have some sympathy for the Christian never-Trump people who are so upset about Trump's disregard for truth, for example. Right. So right. Alan, Alan Noble's a professor at OBU, and he wrote a really good article about Trump's disregard for truth. Mm-hmm. And that we as Christians cannot support somebody who does not believe in truth. And I really agree with a lot of what he said in that article. I just wouldn't necessarily you know, land in the same place that he does. He's advocating for Biden on, on Twitter. But I think he makes a great point, and I'm sympathetic to that. Or you look at the writing of David French. I mean, I think David French makes a lot of great points. He just happens to always be punching the Republicans when he's jabbing, you know. But he makes a lot of great points. The dissent is helpful. You know, the the, the prophetic truth to power is helpful. I do worry about, and I do get frustrated by the people who think that their only role in dissent is towards other Christians. So, for example, a lot of these never-Trump Christians, you see them campaigning with all of their might against their conservative relatives and the Bible church down the road and the people who think, you know, I'm a one-issue voter on abortion. They're releasing videos basically saying you can be pro-life and vote for Biden. I mean, all of their criticism is trained towards the church. And, And, you know, in the Bible, you do see a lot of the prophetic word directed against the people of God. Mm-hmm. But that's because it's pretty clear where you should stand on the other things. I think we've lost that edge a little bit. Yeah, I think so. Too. We're going to have to deal with compromise. We're going to have to deal with the fact that as a church, we really don't know what we think about a lot of things now because things have been co-opted for political purposes that should be really clear in the, in, in, in the light of Scripture. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm honestly just summarizing that for me. I think our country is healthiest when there is a balance of power and there's a healthy debate between conservative and liberal ideas. I don't believe that the far right in any of its forms, and I don't believe that the leftist ideology are healthy for this country in any respect. Yeah. 
You can probably hear chainsaws in the background. We're recording this as we're climbing out of this ice storm. For, <laughs> for our listeners that are not in Oklahoma, we're buried under a couple of inches of ice. But let's turn to some final thoughts then. Uh, you know, my, my prediction essentially is uh, I think if the polls are even close to right, Biden is going to win. I think there's a good chance that Trump surprises. Yeah. I think if that's the case, it's more likely that he loses a close election than that he wins. But I'd put it at maybe... 30% that Trump pulls this thing off and wins. The electoral map is not that difficult. Yeah. The polling is bad, you know, in, in terms of if, if you're hoping that he wins. The map is not that bad. If he keeps the entire Sun Belt and he wins basically Pennsylvania, Ohio, and one other thing, he could win uh, yeah. in the Electoral College. But I still think it's probably less percent chance that he wins. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I will just say this one observation, uh, not trying to give people any false hope, but the shy Trump voter in 2016 that showed up, that wouldn't tell the pollsters they were going to vote for Trump, those people are even shyer in 2020 because it's even Agreed. less popular to say that you're voting for Trump. So we could be in for a surprise. The social pressure is a lot more powerful now. So I, I, I like I said, I do think there's a lot of potential for surprise. I just mm-hmm. wonder if the surprise is it's a lot closer than we thought. Right. Uh, it was going to be, but, but Biden wins. Yeah. But I, I think Trump has a legitimate shot. I think people, you know, a lot of the polls are making the same mistake they made in 2016 of giving Trump a 10% or 5% chance. You know, I think Nate Silver, who was pretty reasonable in 2016, I think he, he was the most reasonable and gave Trump maybe like a 28% shot of winning <laughs> or something, uh, has him down at 13% right now to mm-hmm. win. I think that's kind of a mistake. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Closing thoughts... Um, for you on the election. So if, if our goal in this episode is not to tell people how to vote, but to discuss the issues, discuss voting, discuss you know our political engagement, what are the thoughts that you want to leave people with? Well, I have two. One is do your very best to think biblically about this election. Uh, none of the categories that I mentioned, the moral category, the policy category, are particularly important. My personal benefit out of this, or I don't like Trump or I don't like Biden, I think we should strive to think biblically. What does God care most about uh, in this election? I'm not telling you how you need to land on that, but I will say that that endeavor will serve you well in every aspect of life. Second thing is stepping back from this. Uh, sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. I'm actually more concerned about our ongoing voice and action than I am about our vote in this election. It's important, but for the next four years, we have day in, day out, advocating for the gospel, advocating for justice, advocating for the things that God advocates for. I think our voice is loudest, not on election day, our voice is loudest on the Wednesday afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would add a couple of things to that. I think, number one, from a practical standpoint, I think we all need to heed the proverb of being slow to speak and slow to be angry mm-hmm. and quick to listen. Yeah. In the sense that, I think that's just good advice in general. Mm-hmm. I think it's good advice for politics in general. Yeah. But I think it's going to be really good advice on Tuesday, November 3rd. I don't think we're going to know who won the election on November 3rd. It doesn't seem like any situation other than a total landslide. If, if, for example, Biden wins Florida and Ohio and flips Texas and all that, I don't think we're going to know. Pennsylvania is going to take a long time to count. And it's looking like it's going to be the key state. But they're not even going to start counting their ballots that have come in the mail until after the election is over. And so I think everybody just sit tight. There's going to be a lot of lawyers, there's going to be a lot of discussion over what's going to happen. Number two, resist binding other people's consciences, resist binding your own conscience, resist having your own conscience bound, but don't be afraid to stand for what you think the Bible says. You know, I hear a lot of arguments, a lot Mm -hmm. of these sites have done the whole panorama of options. So Christian Post has both spiritual advisors and a middle option. Christianity Today has pro-Biden, pro-Trump, pro-voting for a third party, pro-not voting. I mean, you get a lot of this kind of analysis here. And, you know, some of them are basically like, if I vote for Biden, then I'm complicit in abortion. If I vote for Trump, I'm going to read you this quote from one of these articles. If I vote for Trump, I will be complicit in cementing a worldview in which the ends justify the means, power replaces truth, the very truths by which we define and understand ourselves as a human race are at stake. 
Uh, Trump's sins aren't only personal, but his grievous sins are against the polis, the common good. If you have one short sentence for one of them, and you have to go into that kind of vagary (laughs) for the other one, that's what I'm saying. Don't be afraid to say, you know what, the issue that matters the most to me is this, and then don't overthink it. It's okay. Vote that way. It's okay to vote your conscience. And, And with that said, let's have some understanding for people who are voting their consciences. I think as a church, we're more focused on other issues than how a certain person votes in this debate. And uh, the third thing I would add is I really want people to consider what we talked about in the Wilson option. I don't know that it's the best one, but I think this point is really important. We have an agenda that supersedes and will outlast anything that happens in American politics. Let's focus on that. You were put on this earth to glorify God and to tell everybody about him, to disciple the nations. And one day, we're going to look back in eternity, and John Piper said this, America will be a footnote in the history of eternity. And that puts it in perspective to say, the church has a mission. If it helps us in this mission to vote one way or the other, that's a minor thing. You are going to be living that mission next Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, for all of eternity. That's right. Let's keep that perspective as we vote, and then let's vote, or not vote, but let's make our political decisions based on our priorities as Christians. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening. And we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.